Welcome to the podcast for Green Hill Church. You can find out more information about Green Hill Church and how to take your next step with Jesus online at greenhillchurch.com. Amen. Thank you guys for leading us in worship. It's good to just sing praises to our King, isn't it? Amen. Well, we're going to be in James this morning. The first hour wasn't as excited as this. I mean, I figured y'all would be excited to be back in James. I don't know. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Just please help me. Just kidding. We do have a lot of new faces since we were in James. Uh, back in August, we started a series walking through the book of James. And uh, around Thanksgiving, we took a break for Christmas. And uh, in the new year, we've been doing our forward series, uh, kind of aligning some vision and direction for us as a church. Uh, but now we're picking back up in James chapter 4. So if you missed the first three chapters, I encourage you to go to the website and you can look up and find all of those sermons if you want to study that and catch up. Uh, but we're going to be in James chapter 4 this morning. And just as a refresh, just to remind us what James is doing throughout this book, he's writing a letter. He's written a letter uh, to, the, to the churches dispersed. And so what he's saying to them is, I know it's been hard. I know you've been uh, through some difficult times and I know there's trials that you're facing facing, but count it all joy. Why? Because you have an authentic faith, a saving God who loves you, who cares for you. But now know this, that your authentic faith needs to work itself out through works. It is a faith that works. In other words, Christ has saved you from your sins. Amen. He has done that good work in you, but he has not just left you there. He has transforms you on the inside and that transformation needs to live itself out through obedience through walking through not just being a hearer of the word of God but a doer as well so as we come to James chapter 4 we find James at a point now where he's been kind of working through some issues and now he gets really um, he, he loses the gentleness on his spirit and comes after them and let's just be honest like for me this morning, I was like, it'd be nice since we're picking it back up to just kind of start gently, but no, we're just going hardcore this morning. So I apologize in advance, but not really. And here's why, because James knows, and I know, and I think we all know that the temptation within us is a drift towards worldliness. There is a dangerous drift in our hearts where we want to return to the self-life that we've been saved from. We turn away from the spirit life of walking in faithful following of Jesus, and we drift towards the self-life, towards the worldliness of our desires. And when we do, it has catastrophic consequences in our relationships with others, in our relationship with God, in our relationships within the church. And James is warning them. And I think he's warning us this morning as well. Read with me James chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. 
You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says, he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Would you bow your heads with me? Father, we thank you for your word this morning. And God, I pray right now for myself and for everyone here this morning that we would humble ourselves to hear from you and that you would do the transforming work through your word as you say you do. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen. Well, here we have this situation where the people of this church were fighting amongst themselves. Can we just be honest? We do the same thing, don't we? And what happens is we've conditioned ourselves to believe that the allegiance of our hearts does not really matter. In other words, when we find ourselves with our hearts torn between the things of God and the things of the world, we think, oh, it's not really that big of a deal. But when in reality it has significant consequences. So we know that there's this, this quarreling, this infighting, this, this, this battle, this conflict happening within the church, and James is using that scenario to get at a deeper issue, the issue of the heart, the drift towards worldliness. So what I want to do, I want to walk through this passage. I want to hopefully show us four Four truths, four realities that I think are important for us to help us walk in a manner that is honoring and pleasing to the Lord and help guard our hearts from drifting towards worldliness. So point number one, if you're taking notes, is this. The root of our problem is a divided heart. The root of our problem is a divided heart. Heart. Notice what James says in verse 1. He asks, what causes quarrels? What causes fights among you? This is a rhetorical question. James knows, they know, that there's fights, that there's conflict. Church, how many times have you been in conflict with somebody? Right? We've been there. We've done that. Whether that's our marriage, whether that's friends, whether that's coworkers, whether that's even in the church itself. And when that question is asked, what causes quarrels, what causes fights among you, you know the answer. The appropriate answer is, he did it. She did it. They did it. If they weren't so, you fill in the blank, we wouldn't be having this problem. You know, right? This is what we do. When I was getting married, my brother-in-law, who was married to my sister, he said, let me just tell you some some, some things to know about marriage that will save your marriage for all of life. Here it is. One thing that you need to know. Whenever there's conflict, it's always your fault. Just remember that. It's always your fault, right? There's something to be said about what James is asking here. What causes quarrels? What causes fights among you? He answers it with this. Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? that your passions are at war within you. James is helping give the answer, helping us recognize that in our conflict, the issue is much deeper than just 
the person we have a conflict with or the group we have a conflict with, it begins in our hearts. It's a divided heart. Notice he says these passions, they're at war within us. The church says, I've been thinking about this and processing this message and particularly this verse that there's these passions at war within us and those lead to conflict and they lead to, to fighting. I've realized that, man, if we can wrap our minds around this reality, it will set us free. It'll set us free from experiencing the brokenness and conflict that so easily entangles us. Rather than pointing fingers, we first need to look within our own heart, this passion, this word, the root of this word, the Greek word is hedone, which we get the word hedonism from. The word hedonism is the belief that pleasure is the chief good in life. So in other words, we fall prey to the reality that our purpose in life is to experience pleasure, to experience happiness, all of these things. And let me just say that if that becomes the, the main focus of our life, it leads us down a dangerous path. Here's why. First Peter chapter 2 verse 11 says this, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and as exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Peter understands this. He's saying these these passions, they're waging war against your soul. And so we need to understand what these passions of the flesh do within us. He's saying you must watch out for these. And here's why. Church, don't miss this. Desires of the flesh left unchecked will always lead to a spirit of entitlement. And as we have a spirit of entitlement, it's when we don't get what we feel entitled to, we quickly walk down a path of frustration and in that anger and then in that bitterness and then in that some type of reaction that leads to conflict. It happens in our marriages. It happens in our relationship with friends, with neighbors, with coworkers. It happens even within the church. Can we just be honest? We're all this far away from conflict. This church, praise the Lord, is such a wonderful church. There, as far as I know, there is not conflict. There is not infighting. There is not strife. And, and it's beautiful. And I think the Lord is blessing the church because of that. But can we just be honest? We're this far away from it. When we allow the worldly passions and desires of ourself to rule and govern. And James is saying this is what's happening within that, that church. Why? Because desire, listen, I can't, I can't claim this for myself. I've read it in a book. Desire always determines direction. Our desires determine the direction that we go. Why? Because behavior always follows desire. You don't believe me? Think back to when you were in preschool and your parents brought you to church. Praise the Lord, they did, right? And they dropped you off in the nursery in the preschool department. And you're like, no, don't leave me. It's scary. And then you see there's toys. And you're like, see it, parents. And you walk in and you see a toy that you like. You desire it. You go and you pick it up and you start playing with it. But then you notice over here across the room, there's another toy that another child has that is really much cooler than the one you have. So what do you do? You leave that toy and you walk across the room and you say, mine. And you grab a hold of it and you yank it out of their hands. 
And that person, that little child, also desires that toy because it's the coolest toy. They all desire it. So what does that child do? Slaps you on the hand, smacks you in the face, whatever it does, and then you have this big conflict. Why? Where did it come from? Desires. Desires determine direction because desires lead to behavior. Our behavior follows what we desire, what we long for. Can we just say, though, that while that's a cute illustration, we as adults are much more sophisticated at it? We do the exact same thing. We long for these pleasures and these desires, and we will do what we have to do to get them because we're entitled to them. This is what we long for. And they wage war within us, according to Peter and according to James. Church, we need to be guarded and careful about this because... Luke chapter 8, Jesus teaches on this very issue. If you remember, he teaches a parable about soil. You remember this? And he says that seed is the gospel. Seed's the word of God, and it's thrown out, it's sown, and it lands on different types of soil. One of the soils he talks about in verse 14 was this. And as for what fell among the thorns, they, those people, those hearts, are those who hear the word of God. But as they go on their way, it says that they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life and their fruit does not mature in other words they're walking they're hearing the word of god they're receiving the word of god but their heart is divided it's at war and the pleasures of the self and the desires of the flesh it it comes along and it begins to choke out what the word of God says. And your spirit life does not ever bear fruit. James is warning this, Jesus warned this, and this was a reality of what was happening in this church. And because of that, they were fighting. So that leads us to point number two. The result of our problem is a conflicted life. The issue is that we're divided. Our heart is at war. There's this self-life versus the spirit life battling one another. But the result of that is we become conflicted in ourself, in our relationships with God, within the church, and we must be very careful. Notice what James says in verse 2. He says, you desire and do not have. So what do you do? You murder. He goes on, you covet and cannot obtain. So what do you do? You fight and you quarrel. These are, this is very strong language that, that James is using. Now, there are some scholars who would say that they believe that there were actual murders that were happening. That, that many other scholars would say that this is figurative language to understand a significant issue. But the truth of the matter is we can't lessen the language that James is choosing to use. He's there. He's witnessing what's happening. And it's so bad that he's using this word murder to describe the infighting and the quarreling and the conflict that's happening within this congregation. All because... Our hearts aren't right because our hearts are drifting towards self rather than the things of God. And it leads to this conflicted life. Here's the truth that is important for us to understand. The condition of our heart radically impacts our relationships around us. You want to improve your marriage? Improve your heart. You want to improve your family? Improve your heart. You want to improve this church? Improve your heart. You want to improve your community? Improve your heart. This is what James is teaching us. Walk in faithfulness to the things of God, and it impacts the people around you. Walk in the things of the flesh, and it will destroy the things around you. 
This is what James is teaching us. See, when our desires become demands, we will always finding ourselves heading quickly to conflict with the very one who can't live up to the demands that our desires have upon them. This is what happens in marriage. There's this expectation, there's these, these desires, and you place it on a spouse, and they can't live up to that. They weren't meant to live up to that, and it creates conflict. So we've got to be careful. We've got to understand the conflict that results because of the, the tension within our hearts. He uses this term anger. He uses this term murder, this, this conflict that's happening. Can we just be honest Every murder, every war, everything that's ever happened in society has been because of the issue of the heart. Praise be to God, by his grace, he's not allowed us to walk down that road, personally. But we're all just a few steps away, aren't we? Jesus makes an illusion, or correlation is a better word, between anger and murder on the Sermon on the Mount. Do you remember that when he says, you say that you haven't murdered and you think you're great, but he says, if you've had anger towards a brother or sister in your heart, you've already committed murder. See, there's a sense in which we think that it's not that big of a deal what's happening in our heart. And James is revealing, Jesus is revealing to us that it is significant. And so notice what James says next, you desire and you don't have, so you murder, you covet, cannot obtain, so what do you do? You fight and you quarrel. You do not have, he says in verse 2, because you do not ask. What is James doing here? It's almost like he shifts directions quickly. What he's doing is he's realigning the hearer's hearts back to where it needs to be, to the source of all the desire and pleasure and happiness that they long for. In other words, you are thirsty. You are thirsting for pleasure, for passions of the self, and you're drinking from the wrong source, so you find yourself empty, 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 which is leading you to conflict, conflict, conflict. And he's saying, you don't have because you're not asking. In other words, you have not turned to the true source of joy and happiness and pleasure. Church, a life in alignment and submission to God is a life that will experience the greatest joy and happiness in life. The scripture confirms it. In Psalm chapter 37, verse 4, it says that God will give you the desires of your heart. Now you hear that and you're like, oh man, that God's going to give me the desires of my heart. This is good. But we miss what comes right before it. What does he say? He says, if you delight yourself in the Lord... Then he will give you the desires of your heart. In other words, quit delighting yourself in the things of the flesh and the things of this world. Delight yourself in the Lord. And in that, as you walk in step with him and align your heart with his heart, then all of a sudden your desires become in alignment with his desires. And he's like, here you go. Here, have at it. Find joy, find happiness, find fulfillment, find all the things that you long for. It's all from me. I'm the giver of good things. This is what our God says. And he's saying to these people, you're in conflict because you're looking for joy and happiness in the wrong places. And he's saying, come back to the Father. See, our world views God as a cosmic killjoy. That he's out to ruin, that, that Christians, listen, Christians are the most unjoyful people. They don't get to experience anything. There's all these rules. No, we as Christians are the most joyful people on this planet because everything that is good, it comes from 
him. Listen to Psalm chapter 16, verse 11. You make known to me the path of life. Come on, if we know the path of life, right? We've got it, don't we? Then he goes on, he says, in your presence, the presence of God, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. This is our God. This is what he offers. This is what he gives freely. Listen, anything that is good and is pleasing was created by God. C.S. Lewis wrote it this way, all true pleasures are authored by God. James is saying, you've turned away from him. You've, you've lost sight. You need to come back. You're, you're asking from the wrong thing. So verse four, he goes, or verse three, he goes on to say, you ask and do not receive. Why? Because you ask wrongly to spend it on your pleasures. In other words, what he's doing is he's helped them understand that their relationship with God is broken. They're viewing God incorrectly. Their view of God is simply this, that he's a genie to grant their wishes, their desires. He's a vending machine so that when they long for something, they just push the button and out it comes. In other words, they see themselves and their pleasures and their, their wants, their desires as ruling supreme. And God is just there to help them get that. They've missed it. God says, no, 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 no. I'm God. I'm God. And when you submit yourself before me, then you will find all that you need. But church, is this not the issue of sin from all of time? I mean, Adam and Eve, what, what was it? It was them saying, no, we want to rule. We want to do our own thing. So they take the fruit. Cain killing Abel. It was jealousy. It was envy, right? You go on, the Tower of Babel. What was the issue with the Tower of Babel? It wasn't that they built a tower. It was the scripture says that they were trying to make a name for themselves. They wanted to rule supreme. They wanted their pleasures, their ways. And God says, no. If you go back in history and you look, anyone who lived after that found themselves in conflict, found themselves in despair, found themselves on a path towards destruction. But God is a God who has the path of life. And he's saying, find it in me. So point number three is this. James now gets in verse four to the reality. In other words, he's been like, I'm kind of leading them through it. And now he gives the reality of our problem. It's an adulterous faith. He doesn't cut corners anymore. Notice verse four. You adulterous people. Now I said this to the first group and they didn't laugh. I've never called a congregation adulterers. I thought that was funny. This is what James is doing. He's calling his people adulterers. That is strong language. That is significant. If you go back in chapter one, there's three different times he addresses the people that he's writing to as something. And he calls them brothers. He says, my brothers, my brothers, my sisters, my, my family, we're in this together. And now he says, all right, I'm just gonna rip the Band-Aid off. You're an adulterous people. Imagine reading that, hearing that. James is not cutting corners anymore. He wants them to understand that the discrimination that he had been talking about, how they discriminate people because of their appearance, because of their status, how they have been speaking negatively about people, how their envy and their selfish ambition rules their life, how they are pursuing pleasure and selfish desires, all these things that he's been addressing in this scripture, he just says, it might not seem like a big deal to you that you're walking in this, but you need to know you're an adulterous people who have cheated on God. 
and he lets them know. You see, this language that he's using, he's borrowing from the Old Testament. This is some language that God used for the people of Israel. If you look over in Isaiah chapter 54, we see that God viewed Israel as his bride. Verse five, it says this, for your maker, God, is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your redeemer. The God of the whole earth, he is called, for the Lord, watch this, has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. In other words, church, you need to understand that you are a wife in desperately desperate need, and you have a husband who is so good, who is so grand, he is better than anything you could ever imagine. This is who God is. But then in Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 20, the word of the Lord has something to say through Jeremiah to his people. It says this, surely as a treacherous wife leaves her husband, so have you been treacherous to me, O house of Israel, declares the Lord. James is borrowing on that language and saying, this church is you. Your heart's divided. You've cheated on God. And what he's doing is he's calling them to this understanding and to this repentance. And he goes on and he says this in that verse. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And this is where this collision happens. You are either a friend of the world or you're a friend of God. But too often times in our culture, we're trying to straddle the fence, aren't we? And what he says is when we straddle the fence, we will find ourselves drifting every time to the things of the world. And when we do that, we find our hearts growing indifferent and hostile to the very things of God, just as the world does. And in so doing, we become, as the scripture says, an enemy of God. See, I think this is the great dilemma within the church today. I really do. God has called us to be great commission Christians, which means this, that we're to go into all the world and proclaim the name of Jesus so that they can know the good news and the saving work, the transformation work of what God has done. Amen to that. This is what we're about. Could it be that the world has done a better job of discipling us than we've done in discipling the world? And it all stems because our hearts are deceptive. We have passions, we have desires, and we long for those things. We've been discipled in the ways of the world and to the, to the ways of the enemy that go against the things of the kingdom of God. And James says, we've cheated, we are adulterous. So this brings us to a point of great sorrow, doesn't it? Is there hope? The answer is yes. Point number four, the remedy of our problem is an unending grace. Can anybody say amen? Listen to what the scripture says in verse five. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? Now, some of your translations may read something different. Here's why. That phrase, that statement, that part of this verse is the most difficult verse to translate in all of the book of James. 
There's a lot of debate. Who's the object? Who's the subject? All these kind of things. But let me, let me summarize from my understanding and my research. Here's, here's essentially what this means. God jealously longs for the spirit of life that he put in you. Let me put it in normal language. When you were born, God breathed life into you. And in his breathing life into you, he gave you a spirit. Not the Holy Spirit, a spirit. This scripture is saying that God is saying, I long for you. Your spirit, your life that I gave you, it's mine and I want it. I long for it. I'm jealous for it. But church, here's what we need to understand because we misunderstand this. His jealousy, the jealousy that God has for us is not an insecure jealousy. No, it's very secure because, you see, God isn't worried that as you go about your life chasing after the pleasures and the passions of your flesh that you're going to find something more fulfilling, more satisfying, more life-giving than him himself. He knows that it's found in him and he's jealous for you. He's not worried that you're going to find something better. He's worried that you're going to lead yourself down a path of destruction. And he loves you so much and he formed within you. He breathed life within you. He's jealous. He longs for you. He's there with wide open arms, even in your adultery. Notice the context. You're an adulterous people, but God longs for you. He's jealous for you. He wants you in his arms. This is the God that loves us. He longs for you. He chases after you. I'm reminded of the good shepherd who leaves the 99 to chase after the one who abandoned him. This is the jealousy that God has for us. He looks at you as an adulterous lover who has cheated on him, and rather than turning his back on you, he lovingly turns to you, opens wide his arms, and says, please come. Please come. This is where it gets really good. Notice the next verse. Verse 6. But he gives more grace. Come on, church. Can someone say amen to this? He gives more grace. It is overwhelming. It is overwhelming to think about the demands that God has for our lives, but he gives more grace. Listen, church. God's grace is always greater than our inclination to sin. God's grace is always sufficient. God's grace never runs out. In fact, this word, this phrase can be translated grace, piled upon grace, piled upon grace, piled upon grace, piled upon grace. And we could go on and on for days and days. It is sufficient. Nothing else needs to be added. This grace is good. Notice Titus says, chapter 2, verse 11, Paul writing to Titus, he says, for the grace of God has appeared. One of the greatest statements in all of Scripture. But this grace does two things. What does it do? It brings salvation to all people. Anyone who puts faith in him, turns from their sin, recognizing their desperate need, cries out to Jesus for grace, for salvation. Salvation comes, the scripture says. But then notice verse 12. What else does it do? It trains us to renounce or to say no to ungodliness and what worldly passions, the very things that are warring within our soul. In other words, God's grace saves us. Yes, But God's grace, more upon more upon more, what does it do? It guides us and it realigns and it helps us fight this battle within our our heart 
this flesh versus spirit, and it's God's grace more upon more upon more that allows us to walk. See, there's common grace that God pours out. You know what common grace is? The fact that you're alive today. Everyone gets it. That we have air to breathe, water to drink. That there's goodness. This is God's common grace. Then there's God's saving grace, which is because of the work of what he did on the cross. That's what brings salvation to us. But then there's God's sanctifying grace. It's what allows us to walk in obedience to him, to say no to the desires of the flesh and say yes to the desires of God. And so James, what does he say? His grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. See, in our daily need, he gives daily grace. In our sudden need, he gives sudden grace. And in our overwhelming need, he gives overwhelming grace. His supply never runs out. My sin is great, but his mercy is what? More. But notice what he says next. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to who? The humble. Grace demands, don't miss this, grace demands a response. And the only way that you will find yourself responding to God's grace is through humility. The proud person says, I don't need it. The proud person says, it's not that big of a deal. The proud person says, I can live how I want and it's all going to work out just fine. But the humble person says, yes, I am an adulteress. Yes, I have cheated on God. Yes, my heart is torn. Yes, there is a battle within me. Yes, I'm desperately a sinner. Yes, I'm desperately in need of God's grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. And what does the scripture say he does? He pours it out. He pours it out. Put a picture up on the screen for you. This is a picture of Niagara Falls. Now, rumor has it that there is once a time where someone painted a picture of Niagara Falls and submitted it to an art gallery. And the art, art gallery got the picture, got the painting, but notice there was no title. You know, most paintings have a title. So they said, we need to have a title for this, and so they came up with one, and here's what they came up with. More to follow. More to follow. It's beautiful. Don't miss this. For thousands upon thousands of years, Billions upon billions of gallons of water have just come flowing right over the edge of that cliff. It never runs dry. More to follow. More to follow. More to follow. Church, you need to understand, this is God's grace. This is God's grace upon your life. Grace upon grace upon grace. Would you bow your heads with me this morning? This passage deals with the issue of conflict. This passage deals with the issue of our hearts turning towards the things of this world rather than the things of God. But ultimately, I believe it's about God's grace and how in our sinfulness, we will always find ourselves in conflict. We will always find ourselves pursuing the things of the flesh. But God's grace 
is more. I don't know what you're walking through. Some of you may be walking through some conflict in your family, in your marriage, maybe in relationships with someone even in this church. Would you just be willing to humble yourself this morning instead of pointing fingers, just look within and say, where's my heart? Is my heart aligned? Would you be willing to just say, God, I need your grace poured out. I need your understanding. I need to humble myself to walk in your ways. Some of you, you've been walking through life and you've drifted, your heart has drifted to living for yourself, essentially. Would you be willing to humble yourself and just say, Lord, I'm sorry. You're a good, good father and you're welcoming me back in. So here I am. Have mercy on me. He will. Some of you have never experienced the grace of salvation. You've never entered into a relationship with your heavenly father who breathed life in you, who's jealous for you, who longs for you. Would you humble yourself this morning and just simply say, I'm a sinner in need of a savior. God, come into my life, save me from my sin. Scripture says that he will. Salvation is yours. Today can be the day of salvation for you. Father, I pray right now for every person in this room, regardless of what they're walking through, Lord, you know, you know what it is. You know the condition of every one of our hearts. So God, by your spirit, may you bring conviction, may you speak truth into us what we need so that we can respond in a humble fashion of simply saying, God, I need your grace. God, I pray for salvation for the person that doesn't know you, doesn't have the assurance of eternity in heaven. God, I pray for the person who's hearts drifted away from you. Lord, thank you for being a gracious God who welcomes us with open arms as a loving father. God, I pray for the person walking in conflict. I pray, Lord, that you would restore hearts to restore relationships. Lord, you have your way. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning, we're going to stand. If you can stand with me, we're going to respond in song. Pastor Casey's going to be down front. I'll be down front. If the Lord is speaking to you, You need to respond for salvation. You need to respond in repentance. Come talk to us. We'd love to pray with you. If you just want to come and pray, just spend some time at the altar, just aligning your heart with the Lord, you respond as he leads this morning. Thanks for listening to the podcast for Green Hill Church. For more information about Green Hill Church, go to greenhillchurch.com. Thanks for listening.